Welcome to the Wake the F Up podcast with Alex and Jamie, where we talk about living consciously and helping people uncover their essential self so they can stop sleepwalking through life. On this podcast, we're having raw conversations about difficult topics. Our goal is to create a safe space where our guests can talk about real problems and issues and how they decided to wake the F up and become mindfulness experts through their own emotional healing journey. Welcome to Wake the F Up podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and I'm so excited to welcome back to the show, my therapist, Jan. Jan is a licensed professional counselor. She started her career as a psychotherapist in 1988, and she has been a practicing therapist now for more than 35 years. In 1997, Jan started a grief center offering grief therapy to individuals, families, and groups. She is now in private practice with a focus on helping people with grief, anxiety, and depression. Welcome back, Jan. We are so excited to have you on the show today. Jamie is out on vacation, but um, it couldn't have come at a more perfect time as I am rounding my first week after um, another anniversary of Carl's death. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Al. I love, I love talking to you. I know. And actually this is, this is, this is one of our many hours together. So it feels very, it feels very natural. Like my nervous system already knows I'm, I'm, I'm with you at two o'clock on, um, four o'clock. I mean, I can't talk about four o'clock on Tuesday. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah. So, well, so what was that? What was that five years or whatever anniversary you want to label it? What I know. So we were giggling before. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. What was it like no. for me? Um, I was laughing actually with Jan before the record button was hit because it was actually, um, I kept saying the five-year anniversary and I laughingly was like, are we counting this like a wedding anniversary where we wait till one to be a year after the person has passed? Because I was thinking like, why isn't the death itself one year is the second time you've experienced that loss year three would be the third so this would be the fifth time i've experienced the loss from the origin but the fourth year since he passed technically so either i'm a terrible mathematician or i think we need a new formula for widows so i'm like this doesn't shouldn't be counted like every other 365 days or maybe it should but so yeah and it's funny i the timing of I think that's, I think again, that with grief, like everything else that's unique to our own experience, it's our own, it's our own way of marking it. Right. I don't necessarily always keenly remember the days that my mother and my father and my brother died. I remember more of the months, uh, the month that they died. Um, so yeah, I think it's, I think it depends on the person. Um, that sure. was significant to you, I think, the nines. Um, certainly. I also think the month, the whole month. So I would say that I noticed the grief for me starts at um, August 9th at Carl's, little Carl's birthday. And so that's my my oldest son. And um, there's something about that. I just, I, I remember, or really my birthday, excuse me. So two days before that on August 7th, I always feel um, that initial timeline regret about 
some things that happened in that week of my birthday, the last birthday that we celebrated. Um, he wanted to go to Commander's Palace where he had been the executive sous chef for a long time. It was a very personal place for us and so special to him. It's obviously, for those who know, is like an institution for dining. And um, I declined the offer because he really was deeply into hospice for over a year, um, couldn't even swallow. Pretty much all he could intake at that point was like ice cream um, and really, really high levels of sugar were the only thing he could process. He was on a feeding tube and couldn't even stand up for really long periods of times or sit up for long periods of times. You were already coming to the house for our therapy at that point. So, um, and he died a month after that. So I was like, you're doing this for me but this is going to be miserable for you. And in turn, that's not really the way I wanted to celebrate um, our one of our last holidays together or, or celebrations, I guess it's not really a holiday, but, you know, and so, but I always feel regret around that time because um, August was a challenging month. He stopped speaking in that month. Um, he had a lot of anger, said a lot of goodbyes to everyone around us. That month that was challenging. He was in a lot of pain. Um, he never did actually say goodbye to me. Um, that's a hard one to say out loud other than in private therapy with you, but I've said it, I think it's important to share that, um, your goodbyes don't, you know, you might get watch goodbyes if you're in a, a long-term illness to everyone around you and you may not get the sort of closure goodbye that you were hoping for. Um, I think it was, I'd like to say that it was too challenging for him to say goodbye to me, but that licked a hard wound of mine that felt very much like my paternal wound, as you know. So I felt mm -hmm. uh, alone and that I, I didn't even get a goodbye. And that felt sort of like a version of abandoning, maybe not at first. I think that was really quite later, maybe even two years later that I started to really process that. And, and what was cool this year was, um, I would say the grief was really heavy from August until we went, Car and I went to New York. We celebrated um, his 13th birthday. We happened to, the trip happened to fall a week before the, he died, the anniversary of his death. And it was really awesome because I think changing energy like that took me out of the trauma, um, which I tend to keep reliving this medical trauma and need to do a lot of work in that area. I'm aware of it, becoming more aware of it as of the last few months. Um, and I was able to really like find more peace the day of, I didn't, I didn't feel the call to do a whole list and litany of things to celebrate. I just did settle things like cook gumbo and thought about him a lot in a positive way, which was, you know, you know, it's really hard. I think you can feel a lot of anger and a lot of ang anger for me tends to be an emotion. That's my secondary go-to emotion. So it takes, it can, I can be in anger first easily. And it takes me a lot of processing, um, journaling, talking to you, mindfulness to uncover what is behind the anger, which is usually sadness and fear. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I really did use mindfulness this year. And I think that was what you taught me. Gosh, we've been together for a really long time now since 2014. <laughs> It's almost 10 years um, and I am still really not that great at mindfulness, but I am a damn hard trier. <laughs> well, 
Well, I think you did a beautiful job describing it there, Alex. I mean, with regard to going to New York with Carr on over that weekend of, of Carl's death on the 9th, that's a really beautiful expression of mindfulness when we are focused on the now, but the now with our child, you know, that is something we can do something about, which is that we can take him to a very special place and engage in being present to him um, over what five years ago was a very, very traumatic time. So that's, that's a good example of mindfulness. What can I do today with who's in my life now um, that gives my day purpose and meaning? Um, how, how can I funnel my energy in a sense from the sadness and really more to, um, again, who needs my love and attention and focus right now? And that's kind of a, a cool way to do it. I think um, when I talk about mindfulness and grief, it's it's that I think in particular the first year after a loss, I use the river's journey as a metaphor with grief because I think it is sort of apropos. I mean, we're going in the right the right direction with the current, but I can't anticipate what it's going to be like down the river because it's enough that I am trying to do um, this part of my grief that's so very difficult, particularly in the, in the acute stages of it. Um, so I like my metaphor for, for people is look at the scenery here today, do that as best you can. Right. But six miles down, you're going to be different psychologically and emotionally to handle that that hurdle, that time, that secondary loss to the to the death, whatever's going to come. I often say this. I think, I think it's maybe a way to say it. It's like, how can we understand the death of a significant loved one when we haven't lived long enough on the planet without them there? Right. We can't know. We can't know all the things. We can't know all the ways we're going to be blindsided by all of the all of the secondary losses. So. It's, it's such a difficult journey. I don't need to go ahead of myself. Um, I need to take care of me and just do the best I can with this day, with this hour. I think that's really helpful. It's yeah. And I think, I think, you know, when you're really acutely after the death, like right away, you actually auto pilot. And that may be like a trauma response. Maybe that, maybe that's what the brain is so over flooded with overwhelm and emotionality and, yeah. and the brain like that. I think you automatically go into that zone in the funeral. It's sort of the, the aftermath pieces or even the, the pre, if you, if you have knowledge of what, you know, the death is coming like I did. Well, I think that's, that's Bill Ward, William Warden's work. Um, w O R D E N. The, the tasks of grief are different than what Elizabeth Kubler-Ross identified as, as the stages of someone who is facing their death. Um, the tasks he talked about, that first one is even trying to grapple with what happened and right. 
you know, how surreal that is that we know it happened from our eyes up, but we don't really know what happened. And so, you know, we wake up morning after morning thinking this was just a very, very bad dream because it is traumatic and it is, if it's sudden unanticipated, but even if it's, if it's a, a death where it was a hospice related situation, for example, families will say, I just, I still didn't quite know, you know, there's yeah. nothing like that, that final, um, that final breath. But yeah, I think we can't know. And, and thank God, I guess it's sort of a, we anesthetize, we're anesthetized in the beginning to be able to make all the decisions we have to make about plans and rituals and ceremonies and taking care of children and, and everyone that's involved. I had many over the years, family members say, I cannot believe I shook 500 people's hands at the funeral and apparently said something appropriate to each one. And for the life of me, I couldn't do it today. And they might be three, four, five, six months in because it hits yeah. us differently as we, as we progress. Yeah. Yeah. It, and I agree with that. You know, like I, I think there were, you know, several thousand, a thousand plus people at Carl's um, funeral in the procession line. Like it just, it actually had to be stopped, you know, and I, what a blessing that is that he touched so many people's lives, obviously. Um, I don't know how I made it through that without too much crying car as well. You know, one of the bigger griefs or grief processing moments that I'm having is how that pendulum shifted, um, after it was over, like after there was this, like exactly what we're talking about, um, anesthesia feeling and you're just numb. And then when we got to, we went to the beach, you know, a lot of my processing can often be too through my children because I love them so much. It's like, I was super worried about them. And so in that, I feel like I'm almost like processing what happened through car, you know, like oh. how he stopped speaking or as of late, you know, Kate is getting her voice quite strongly. And, um, she, she was upset, of course, that I didn't wake her up. You know, she was five years old. Um, when he died at, he died around nine, nine o'clock, I think it was. And all those nines happened on the nine, 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 19 at nine o'clock. And, um, I actually laid for about an hour, you know, and then I got my mom in there and my sister was, Vicky was there. And, um, you know, my mom obviously confirmed that he, he had passed. I didn't really need that confirmation. A hospice was not there at the time. Um, and I knew I had to call, uh, his parents, you know, to give them an opportunity to say goodbye. And so I stayed for a while, just hugging him and kind of just like having a minute. And then I woke car up and decided not to wake Kate up. Um, at this time, you know, he was six foot tall and 128 pounds. She had already seen him that thin, but he was often covered, you know what I mean? And like, and in this position, he, he was completely unclothed and I had, he was wearing a diaper. You know, there's a lot of like these things, like, I don't know that she knew that, you know, a lot of the time she, she was too scared to come in. And so waking her up, I was always um, afraid of that, that that would be more frightening than it would be closure. And 
I made the best decision I could. And you know, I've grappled with that decision for a long time, but she has verbalized how upset that she was um, because of course her brother told her I didn't wake her up and that he got to say goodbye and she did not, you know, I did take her to the funeral home, but she doesn't remember that because she was either traumatic response or she, you know, five, like how much, how many memories stick with you is, is, you know, always a question mark. So I apologize to her this year again about that. And, and we've been able to have some verbal conversations about her grief a little bit, you know, she's starting to dig into it. So you do regrieve and through your children, if you have children, which is interesting. And, and you have to look at it from their lens, which is completely different from, from yours, of course. So that's I also been think unique. That, that they, uh, I mean, it's a very good point. I also think, I mean, you, it's sometimes it's, yeah, it's our grief and our relationship with that person. They had a completely unique and different relationship. So it, yeah, and we, our sadness is then about their, their losses, you know, throughout their, at different poignant times in their life, for sure. I also think kids can drag us through difficult times, right? Because we'll do it for them. When we wouldn't yeah, really sure. rather get out of bed, they're there needing us and needing our nurturing, nurturing and caring and breakfast and whatever it is. So we have to we have to keep going. Sometimes that's enough impetus for us to to take the next step. For sure. I mean, I think a lot of my some of the work that I've you and I have been doing this year is primarily surrounding my own personal grief because I think in the aftermath, um, Carr was so depressed and not well that acutely I needed to tend to him. And then the pandemic hit and it, you know, things were just my business. There were so many things going on all at once that the processing of some of the medical trauma and all the things that you see in it, I think I have just not open the door on that because I had so much else to go through. Um, and, and you know, the young, thing, many young okay. mothers will say that and fathers very much. Sure. As, like I, I don't think I took the time to do my own grief work because I was in survival mode trying to take care of the kids. And sometimes it, you know, I had a client once it was two to three years later. And she said, I think I have to come and do my own, my own work about it so um that there's that that can happen as well you're right well there's no shock to me too because we talk about grief and it's so personal to me because it, it you know when we say grief I think of my primary loss of of Carl but the truth is what I've learned in the journey and especially from you is that loss there's so many losses in life like and, and the hardest part of, or the best part about therapy, but the hardest part about getting through all the, all the grief, if that's even possible, is that when you open this all up, it almost opens up every grief in your life prior to, you know, this, this one main loss. So, I mean, the losses were mounting from cancer all the way up to the death, but in, in truth, you know, you don't have to have a death to have loss. Like I feel that the loss of my father is probably one of the hardest losses I've ever had to get over. And he's alive. It, you know, he just abandoned me personally and my family. So, I mean, I think, do you think that death loss and, and loss, you know, 
like that paternal paternal roles who aren't there for you or job loss or like, do you think loss universally all has the same treat treatments? Wow. It's an excellent question. Um, again, I think it's not, not to punch the answer, but <laughs> I think it's such a unique experience because there's so many specific circumstances that make it unique. You, um, what history you have with your father, um, and, and how that all played out. Uh, but, but most of us would say, yes, if the person's alive and chose not to be in my world, it's a real different pill to swallow than when my beloved didn't have a choice in the matter because it was a terminal disease process and, and diagnosis. Um, yeah, that's that's a diff, probably a very different animal. I mean, both can be interpreted as as abandonment, um, with very different. It seems to me very different um, ramifications for the griever. Um, right. But I think that was an an interesting point. Like one of the things that I think universally, and it could be personal to me because of of my abandonment history, but I feel feel that one of the stronger uh, losses or emotions that I feel are, I don't know if that's an emotion, but is abandonment. I felt that from before he died, um, you know, just a lot of ways because they, they have to sleep more. They can't be the husband that you, you need because they're ill. And, and then in all the crisis, you know, like you're, you're alone, you're physically alone. And, I think what's cool about our relationship or, or at least your guidance to my life has been, you know, one of the bigger healing components that we've worked on is loving myself. And I think, um, that kind of mindfulness or that kind of focus on the self sounds so selfish, but maybe you want to talk a little bit about why in abandonment issues, whether it's like a death or, you know, a spouse cheats on you or your father abandons your family or you never had a father or you're adopted, whatever, like all these different p potential losses or alone or abandonment. Why do you feel like it's so important in, in healing to love yourself first or, or, or authentically? Because it just is. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm razzing you. Um, when you think about life's traumas and losses and and hard heartache and hard lessons that it often brings, it seems to me if you throughout all that accept yourself and treat yourself With, with the tender care and love that you do, your children or people that, you know, are in your life, that goes a really long way because as it manifests in grief, I don't know how many times I've said this to people who are grieving, is now is not the time to be hard on yourself and say things to yourself like, why aren't I getting more done at work? Why, 
do I have such little energy? Why do I feel so tired? Why, why do I feel so overwhelmed? Well, there's plenty of good reasons. You're not sleeping well. Grief is, is um, very exhausting in so many ways because it's psychological, social, it's everything, it's physical. So now is the time to really be your own best friend through that very difficult process, it seems to me. Um, and as I've said, you know, before to people, if you don't abandon you, no one else can in that regard. Yeah. I know that sounds like it's waxing philosophical, but if I stay no, with powerful. me and I take care of my little girl inside and I stick with Jan through the thick and thin, mostly through the thick, um, <laughs> then those difficult times in life, maybe... I have a shot at really getting to the other side of them because I'm there with me. Um, no one can define me, but my, but my, myself, um, as to my worthiness, as to my sense of, um, how important I am. And, and so that's like a core thing. I mean, I think if we could, if we could do a podcast where the world could be changed in that way, you know, that one core, love and acceptance of self it's huge it's huge huge yeah and and oftentimes yeah go ahead I was thinking just you know the takeaway from grief therapy obviously has been to to walk through the trauma and in it it was a lot of the frustration of just being a caregiver but the biggest overarching thing that you've you've taught me is First of all, and the first thing we learned and still still learning um, is to is to be in the now, is to be here and and be mindful, you know, and it actually really got me to create this company, you know, and, and I think I was already doing mindfulness practices, but I personally wasn't capable of being mindful of myself. I could be you know, teaching Pilates in someone else's body and be out of my body. And it felt good to be out of my racing head and thoughts. But the mindfulness was so powerful that I learned to go inside and hear, you know, my little girl who was suffering really, really badly. And I think the secondary lesson that I learned was through through all of my childhood wounds and abandonment that happened well before Carl even came into the picture I didn't love myself um, and I felt unlovable really. And because of that subconscious wound, I reacted and was triggered in every possible way when someone didn't see my value, didn't pay attention, um, could have been, I think they call it like a hungry ghost type person had I not healed that wound because I was so empty on the inside I, and I was giving out so much subconsciously. I loved giving and helping, but I think I was trying to let it have it come back to make me feel good. And I got into some real unhealthy balance there, as you well know, in my work life um, and my personal life too. And so it's interesting, like I would say at the five-year mark, when you talk about the river's journey, I've used that a lot. I actually, we filmed on that and I, think I have a clip of it, which maybe I'll play this week of us talking about it. And it, it's so powerful that metaphor 
even to this, this day. At that point, it got me out of hell. Like in each point I, you brought that up to me, it was like, let's say I'm reliving a trauma, which um, I went to my first funeral. I, I told you about this, but I went to my first funeral. Um, David, my husband's coworker, so his head surgical tech lost his sister. Um, she died of lupus and his older sister, the sister older than he's the baby, but his old, his oldest sister had died one year, something like that one year, right before, right at the same month, same time as this sister at the funeral we went to of lupus. So at this funeral, the mom had lost two children to lupus and, and this person was the only remaining child. And it was so challenging to be in that space, but I knew I didn't want David to have to go alone because I just felt like that was, he needed the support. And I also wanted to know that I, if a, if a true loved one, you know, had a funeral, then I would be able to be in that community, I guess, or be able to make it through that, I guess. It was sort of, um, I just thought maybe it was time that I could, I could handle it. But it's interesting. I saw all the things that I had experienced, of course, in my own way, but, you know, the, the way they put, carried the casket, the pallbearers and, and the way they put the casket in. And I, I could feel my legs buckling. I almost felt like I was going to faint. Some of the smells, um, I felt really strongly attuned to the, her husband and her mother, the, the parents, you know, just, I knew viscerally the pain that they were going through. And it was just in some ways so beautiful to do that. I did it, I think two weeks before the anniversary. And it reminded me that again, on the reverse journey is like, I can feel like I'm back there again, where I almost felt my legs were going to buckle and I was going to faint. And I was right back in that same, like even hearing the latch of the door to the hearse, like that was such a, I could, I will never not hear that sound in my head. Um, but I didn't, I didn't go down, you know, I didn't faint. I was down the river watching something that played out that was so different than my experience, right? It's a, pater a maternal and paternal loss. And then the sibling was the person we were there to support. But I, I don't know. It was interesting where I was like, I have, I'm, I've, I've, I am healing. I am down the river. And that was the point of that. You, you would do that a lot of times when I'd be triggered or feel like I was right back at the start of it all. Cause that's, that happens. Right. Like, don't do most people feel that, right? Like you just feel like I'm here again. I'm going to die. Like you just can't get out of bed from re grief or of, of memories of things that open it up and open it up and open it up. Mm -hmm. So that river's journey is huge. I mean, it's huge. It's, it might be everything really, because if I think in five years, what the self-love has done for me, my whole, my whole life has changed. And I'm, you know, I had Harmony, one of our guests recently asked me, do you really believe that you're deserving of your happiness and love? And she didn't mean it like you're not deserving. Right. She meant, she was asking, in, in relation to like, do I, do I actually really believe it? And then I told her, like, I think that shy, humble version of me that does, still is working on believing I'm lovable and I'm much better than I used to be. But 
I don't phrase it that way. Like I'm deserving. It's more like, I just look for the things that bring me authentic joy and peace and that, that make me feel authentically like me. And I've, I've gotten more in tune by loving myself um, with my yeses and my nos of what, who I am, what I need. And so I think in that, it's changed so much for me. You know, it's so powerful to become mindful of, of, of what you need. I would have never had that without you and without this grief walk, I don't think. And so, I don't know. I think it's, it's hard to put into words how powerful some of these tools are because it's not just the death that I'm working on. It's all the loss, you know, from childhood on. And I, I think that's what makes widows so awake if they choose, if they choose to go, you know, keep healing. And do you feel like all of your, I mean, not all, but like, do you think the clients that are really, or your patients that are really doing their work, do they look at the world differently? There's no question uh, that that, that journey, the intensity of it changes us. Uh, I mean, I think every, I think every death of a significant loved one changes us. You know, all the, all the things we can talk about that, you know, off the top of our head, like all the things that, and, and I'm not saying, you know, I, I like to use this, this anecdotes with all the, the brilliant clients that have taught me over the many years. It's like the lady that said, am I ever going to laugh at a, at a stupid joke at a cocktail party again? <laughs> I love that because it was her, it was a great way of saying like, am I ever going to be to that place again because it felt so impossible that she would be there one day um but because i think right i mean certainly so many things pale in comparison to that experience right i mean there's so much that we worry about and fret about life it's so important that when we go through the, the significant loss like that it's like oh my gosh the you know and how many people say this the world should stop when our mm-hmm. loved one dies, like it just, they'll say it oftentimes it, and it just kept going. You know? um, so, but you're, you know, the answer is yes. I, I think, I think we are forever changed. Um, um, and for having, and for having with, known with them it? and loved them and have, and having been loved by them. And um, I mean, all of it, it's, it's profound when you think of it from those, from those ways. Um, yeah. Do you allow it to change you, your, your patients, you know, in their journeys, like what you, what you at least experience together in community? Cause you have to hold a lot of space, um, for so much heaviness. I think, you know, I imagine you see, you know, the worst of the worst in terms of grief and loss. Do you find that it changes you as well as you, sit in that community and, and guide them through these difficult parts on the river, this journey? <laughs> no question, sweetie. I think um, it's why I love coming to work. I get to sit with heroes like you and, and talk and learn and um, practice. I, I, you know, if I say this, like every day I get to practice 
you know, teaching mindfulness or practice, looking at how it is that we can love ourselves better and cherish ourselves better and focus on the important things in a day and the gratitude practices. And yeah, it's like, I get immersed in it all the time. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard to believe that anybody can tolerate hanging out with me. <laughs> my dogs don't have trouble. And I think my kids understand, but yeah, it's, it's a very spiritual journey. There's no question about it. Um, I mean, to I know sit, I'm wondering, to talk about things like this. I mean, this isn't, you know, well, and that's why I think I, I'm, I love our time together. Honestly, like I don't, I'm struggling as of late to connect. Um, I think, you know, I'm in a new community and so making friends, it's been really challenging and I'm not sure if it's like a combination between, um, I don't know my station in life and what I, what matters to me seems to be so different than what matters to some, not all, but some. And so it's, it's often hard for me to be in friendship. Um, especially with the emotional journey I'm on, I'm, I'm noticing lately that, um, I think I might not be the easiest person to be friends with just because I don't know the healing and I'm determined for the work and I'm determined to be awake. Um, and that sometimes people think that's judging judging and I'm not, I'm super, like, I literally am the least judgmental person I know. I really don't feel a judgmental bone or cell in my body. I, I love all humans, you know, and I, I see the journey as what it is, but I'm wondering, do you find it hard to, for other people too, to be in like friendships that, that are surfacey is really what I'm saying, or even deep friendships when people are in such different parts of the healing journey? Yeah, I, I, I think you're also, if I might say, at a different developmental stage in your life. I think that given the the, the years with Carl and, and the, the chronic terminal illness, all the attempts to heal him, having two children, businesses, starting careers, I mean, uh, it's, I think this might be a time when you were wanting to sort of focus more on enjoying your kids. They're, you know, they're different ages now. Um, your blended family, which is so important to you. So I think I, before Katrina, there was a sense of you can do it all. You can be there for everyone. Um, was sort of my motto. And then with some of the trauma that I experienced and, and then getting on the other side of it, uh, it's not that you're more brittle, you're less, you're more willing to surrender things, I think, but, but maybe, yeah, maybe you learn the hard way that giving all the time in that, in that respect, isn't maybe how you want to do it. Uh, and I'm wondering, like, when you're in this healing journey and you're working and you find yourself to be getting through a lot of your, you know, your losses and your grief, um, 
how do you, when your heart is, is wide open, like I think a lot of us who are post loss of this nature, how do you protect yourself when you're this raw and open? I find myself setting boundaries is, 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 is become the key for me. And, um, I have to be careful. I have to be really careful because I'm, I think all the pain that I've been through, I I'm very fragile in, I'm not fragile. I'm very strong, but I'm very tender, um, emotionally speaking. And so sharing my heart and letting people in, um, I don't mind getting vulnerable clearly because I can say anything kind of to anyone, but sort of a, the depth is scarier because the pain, I, I, I think I get huge repercussions when I get hurt. Um, is that common? Or maybe just personal for you, <laughs> for you to use your tools. Yeah. That, you know, like we said earlier, I can't abandon, I won't, I, someone can't abandon me if I don't abandon me. And I think that's like, very hard in this world, especially this, this world today to not be overly reactive. If someone isn't respectful or, um, kind or gentle with your tenderness, um, the question is then you need to be kind and tender, um, and with your with your vulnerabilities and I, and I know you, you can do, you can do that. You can hold them. Um, it may not be that certain people are, uh, comfortable for us or, you know, but I think all of that is still self-care. It's not easy, but it's still self-care, um, to be resilient and, and not reactive to, step back when you need to, I, you know, you, you know how much I love the word boundaries and I think they're so very healthy, um, to take a minute. How do I want to respond to this person? Do I want to respond? Um, maybe I need to meditate about it. Um, maybe I need to let them go in love and light. Um, because it's hard to like, how do you know when to let someone go? Now that's it. That's hard as a universal question. I know, but you know, one of the things I'm thinking about was in loss, you know, people don't often think about, well, so yeah, you know, that your friend who's lost her husband or, you know, someone's just lost a parent or they've lost a child, God forbid. And then everything changes. And so, you know, all the widows get on here and, and have talked about this. So we've had lots of people talk about how, well, you're not the same person anymore and you just can't be actually. And to try to sit in that old you, it's actually unhealthy and doesn't work because you have to go down the river's journey or you'll die, or at least it feels like you'll die. I'm not sure that the parts of you that would keep you healthy and alive, I think would kill you. And so a lot of times people need you to be stuck. Um, or the old you. And I've, I've noticed that one of the hardest unexpected things about the death and the death of my life that was surrounding Carl's death. Um, people, I lost a lot of people and actually 
I mean, I would say not still am, but I'm still am. I still am in loss, you know, of that. Having to work on the fact that I had to let go of someone in love, people in love and light because it, you know, it wasn't healthy or I couldn't be that same person anymore and I needed to get healthier myself. Do you think that this is common, right? So people having loss of people in circles changing of your support groups after, after a loss? Most definitely. I think, I think it's, um, it's sort of physics and that sounds weird, but like what, what I think tied us to certain people during a long illness crisis in a family, um, the tensions, if you will, that keep people uh, tied to us um, when the crisis is over, maybe as we go through our grief and become who we're going to become in terms of what we've learned from that amazing time, um, difficult and amazing, I don't know that it really makes sense to think that we're going to keep those same people because that tension is changed. If that makes any sense, that physics has changed how we need people, yeah. who we need um, and how they needed us and could be there for us. Maybe that, that play changes that, that Broadway show uh, changes as we get to the, uh, the final scene. Well, I remember when my parents got divorced, you know, that was, that was a really hard thing too. Like everything changed in that too. And I think divorce can be, there's a lot of similarities in divorce and death because it's a death of, you know, a marriage harder sometimes I think, cause the, the person is still alive and you have to uh -huh. navigate that shared, that shared experience. But I do. I think relationship loss can feel like, you know, a death and, um, and in that too, right? Like when we're, I think one of the things that I'm, I'm trying to universalize in the company is like, how do we take concepts of loss and, and, and get people to understand that one of my friends who you know well said, well, I'm, I don't, I'm not going to listen to your show because, you know, I haven't lost anybody. And I was thinking to myself, Maybe I'm, maybe I'm speaking too much about my personal loss. You know, that's only my, just my lens that I can, you know, channel things through. But for me, it's more than the, the loss. I want to universalize like that these, there's themes in grief that everybody deals with. And it, it can be on different levels of like smaller problems or issues at work or, you know, um, do, don't you think, like, don't you think there's that loss and grief is so universal. It's not, you don't have to be in a widow's role to experience it on a day-to-day -day basis. No question. I think that's what's so in interesting about the, the, the uh, stigma that grief and loss have in our culture is that the funny thing was, we're all going to experience it one way or another. Um, but we still live in a culture often, often, not all that uh, avoids it, avoids the discussion, avoids wanting to think about it, avoids the grieving woman who's you know got her grocery cart 
in the in the in the store. Um, and a lot of that's just the fear. Uh, it's it's some scary stuff, particularly if you haven't been through it. It's also why do you think it is so so scary for us as a culture? Yeah. Yeah. Um, why do you think it is so scary? Well, I think for you brought up Kate having difficulty seeing her dad, right? In that, in that uh, very reduced, if you will, changed physical body from what she, from how she knew him. Mm -hmm. So, so my first thought is it's it's like Kate's fear. If I have to see it, it'll be real, um, and it's something that I don't want to be real. Um, right. So reality that that's, that's the first task of grief too, right. Is all those reality checks that make it keep being real that are so painful, the little things and the bigger things. Um, so I think facing that reality and that's what Byron Katie says is one of the hardest things in, in our own upset is not wanting to face reality. Um, ironically, healthy people face it. <laughs> you're a person that does that. You, you delve in, you're inquisitive, you ask the difficult questions, i.e. what you're doing with, with your, with your pro, with your work and your, and your uh, business is like, you want to delve into the difficult stuff in the hopes that, you know, David and I were saying that the other night, like I would, he was saying when he first started therapy, he was really scared to, he, cause he didn't know how to feel right. Because he, he was taught to not, to not feel. And that was his, his coping strategy was to, you know, disassociate from, from the feeling itself, I think. So in order to survive, I think in my house, in order to survive, I had to, feel without words. So like empathically feel everything around me. And in that I was able to stay safe, right? Like keep myself out of situations where I would be abandoned or, um, you know, my narcissistic father, if I could empathically find and stay out of this intellect side. So there was also that too, like, because I could never be smart enough in my, in my family of origin. But if I could just do emotions, I kind of could be left alone. But my mom, I think because of her childhood being so ch challenging, she she always wanted us to analyze and feel and almost overanalyzed everything. And in all of that, when I got to therapy, I actually think I was, instead of, it, it was painful for sure to look at a lot of these things, but to have answers to all the, what you like to say, the mind fucking that I was doing all this blah in my head. I felt relief, you know, I felt relief at looking at it because something about knowing myself and that I'm not crazy, you know what I mean? That I'm not, it made me feel a sense of relief where I've noticed that some of my my friends or other people that I've talked to, the beginning of therapy is so, so scary for them if, 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 if they don't tend to be a person that wants to, you know, like, Think is feel safe to feel, I guess. You are not afraid of that, my friend. 
you, no, you would I bring, you would I bring should Carl, probably be yeah, more of <laughs> here on this couch and, and practically make him address things in his own dying that you were not afraid of that. And, and I think you knew that it would help him to, to navigate the river he was on a little bit better. Yeah, it was, it really was an honor, honestly. That's kind of where I, I feel like I've landed is I have been afraid to be unapologetically joyful for, again, other people's perception of what that looks like, as though that might lessen the love that I have for my first husband, Carl. But my love for Carl is so separate from my love from, for David and my life now. And I realized on this year that I was going to let go of this grief in a way that obviously I'm here on the podcast talking about it, but let go of it being my only identity because I think I'm holding on to that because it's all that we have. It really, a lot of our marriage was, was the grief walk, you know, five of the nine years of our marriage was cancer. And I don't know, it's hard to, to let it go because it feels like that's what we have to hold on to. But I realize that if I replace the grief and the grief won't go away, but that if I replace the heaviness of the grief and the pain that we went through, so let's say, let's use the word replace the pain with just the love. And maybe it's not you know, the memories are fading, which is scary. Um, I think that I'll have a, a better go at my future. And that if I, again, love myself enough to know that I'm deserving of the love that I'm in and that the amount of work that I have done and I'm continuing to do, it's been so hard to look at myself in this way. And I never expected that my story would be this. Never but it is who I am. And um, I'm really proud of the work that I've done that I'm able to be calm enough to accept and love myself. And in that feel and be able to have such a committed relationship, I feel really safe for the first time in, in my whole life. And that was really my work to be done for my whole life. And I, I kind of thought at year five, because of Carl, and not, not that I would have wished this, right? Like, I don't wish his death. It's kind of a shitty thing when people always say that. Oh, because he died, you got this. You're, you're better. I'm like, but it is kind of true. There's some truth to that statement. There's also some false it's really, statement. Yeah. Because of the, As the work I've done. of my husband's death. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's how I've grown. That's right. It's hard to, it's hard to put that into words because, you know, people say that kind of stuff to you all the time. Like, if you wouldn't have died, you would have never found David. Well, sure. There's all these truths that come up, but it's a result of, of the work that, and I'm, and I am grateful. I am grateful. And I feel that my goal for the year, and I guess I'm really saying it out loud now is that I can practice joy and really be in joy that I have done this work. I get to share it, which is cool. And people can take what they want from it. But that I, that I get, I've recreated family and that's so different. And it's not easy. Um, 
certain parts of it, I'm still having to work through what it looks like. It's just so different than, you know, that Christmas card in my head. I have to work on that part of me too. But, but the truth is that like this love that I have created, that we have created, I, I get to celebrate that by choice and I have to choose it because other, sometimes other people's opinions can make me hold that tight inside. And I hope that people out there in grief or loss, you know, I remember what you told me, you're like, I was like, it, and he hadn't even passed yet. I was like, I'm never going to be better. I'm never going to love anyone. I'm never going to, I'm never going to recover, you know, all the things you think on the start of the river. And you told me, I mean, you didn't even say like, you'll date again or anything. You just said like, I can promise you, you know, what did you say? I don't even really remember. That, that I just I, kept that, telling you it was going to be different. think back. And I understand why you're saying it. And I understand why you feel that way sitting with me right now where you are in the river. I get it. Makes sense. And I also know anecdotally from years of doing this work that you just never quite know. <laughs> I feel like that's, yeah. I feel like that's Which is awesome. the end of this session. <laughs> I do too. Well, I am so appreciative as always. So. Thank you so much for coming on and we'll obviously keep having Jan, but um, this has been my grief month. Um, it started in August, truthfully, behind the scenes where I actually was grieving. But September, I'd like to celebrate the walk through grief. And I think there is no more perfect person in the world to do that with than you. And because of you, I am, I have a lot of joy and you've taught me how to love myself and there aren't words to thank you for all that you do for me. And I hope that our community gets to tap in to your resources. She is located in New Orleans and we have her uh, connected to all of our socials and this will be everywhere you can accept, you can have access to her in all the ways. Good luck getting an appointment. It is challenging. <laughs> she is a very sought after woman, but if you're lucky enough to be her patient, uh, she will take you down the river and get you to a place where you in year five get to look back and with love and sadness sitting side by side. Thanks, sweetie. I'm really proud and of, thank her, you. And of listen, my journey. Thank so you for I'm proud of so many other people on this river that you, you bring them such, you bring it's, them such it hope. Is, that's that's an incredible incredible thank you all right that was my philanthropy that was my philanthropy so i hope you have a wonderful evening and everyone thank you love you too bye this has been the wake the f up podcast with alex and jamie a podcast about normalizing and overcoming challenges like grief and fear Be sure to check out our other episodes where our community of experts share tools and ideas to help you wake to the life inside of you. If you enjoyed this episode of Wake the F Up, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And join the Wake community by downloading our app. Just search for Wake Wellness in the Apple or Android app store. And follow us on Instagram at The Wake Wellness. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Caroline Pickens and the team at Fresh Picked Studio. For more information, go to freshpickedstudio.com.